Good morning. My name is Janice, and this morning's scripture reading is Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 36. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all of the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus and Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple with him. Then the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. 
he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. He ordered him to be brought into the barracks, and when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! This is God's word. Thank you, Janice. Well, we're at that point in the book of Acts where most of our sermons will be covering a whole chapter. So from here to the end, they'll be like that. We have the cultural phrase, that escalated quickly. You heard people say that like, and it's usually said, that escalated quickly. You know, two people are talking or fighting and whoa, what, what happened? Like what What's going on? Why did that escalate so quickly? Paul goes to Jerusalem in the spring of A.D. 57, here in Acts 20. A.D. 57, in the spring, and Paul's presence among the zealous Jews incites a riot that nearly kills him. And he's only saved when a few Roman centurion commanders, along with several hundred trained, armed soldiers, swarm into this huge crowd of people to break up the fight. So Acts 21, we could say, that escalated quickly. Why? Why? Why Why did that happen? What's going on? So I want to start with that question of why, and then we'll work from here towards what the passage has to say to us. To answer the question of why, we need to cover some history. And so I, I'm going to pick five places, and we're going to count them backwards. So five, four, three, two, one. Boom, I guess. <laughs> there are many places we could begin our history lesson, but we're going to pick 600 B.C. In a series of attacks over several years, God caused his people to be exiled from Jerusalem. They are in Jerusalem, Israel, and through all these attacks, God's people were exiled and their temple was destroyed. That's, that's five. About 100 years later, another foreign king was in charge of a, the region where God's people had been exiled. And God caused that king to allow God's people to return and rebuild their temple. And so they did. They returned and they rebuilt and they, when they returned and rebuilt, they had this heightened sense of God's, of a regard for God's command. That's, that's four. A few hundred years after that, around 200 BC, so we've done like 600 and then four, 500, and now here's 200 BC, there's an Egyptian ruler who comes across Egypt and up through Israel and he fights a battle over on the side, and, and, and he wins, and that actually makes God's people happy because they were sort of threatened in this. And as this Egyptian ruler is coming back through to Egypt, he stops in Jerusalem, and he says, I want to go into the temple, something strictly forbidden. And we can read about this in a book called Third Maccabees. I don't know if you've ever heard that name. It's not a book in the Bible. 
But it's a history book between the Old Testament and the New Testament, some of the history there. And so 3 Maccabees is not in the Bible, but it has this to say about that event with the Egyptian king. When they, the Jews, said that this was not permitted. So Egyptian king, you can't go in there. When he says this is not permitted, because not even members of their own nation were allowed to enter, not even all of the priests, but only the high priest who was preeminent over all, and he only once a year could go into the temple. The king was by no means persuaded by this. Third Maccabees chapter 1, verse 12 says, Even after the law had been read to him, he did not cease to maintain that he thought he ought to enter, saying, If those men are so deprived of this honor, I ought not to be. In other words, I'm going in whether you like it or not. And the king's attempt to enter the temple leads to an urgent time of prayer among God's people. In fact, some of what the author calls, quote, the bolder citizens, chapter 1, verse 22, almost fight the king at the cost of their lives to prevent him from going into the temple because it's that important. But then these bolder citizens are just encouraged to just pray. Just just, just pray. God will sort this out. And, and, And miraculously, he does. The Egyptian king, as the story goes, becomes paralyzed, doesn't go into the temple, and his guards have to bring him out, and he leaves Jerusalem having never gone in. That's number three. Another 50 years after this, a different foreign ruler does go into the temple. A historian named Josephus, who lived about the time of the Apostle Paul, writing back about this event, so just round numbers, 150 BC. It's not when it was, but round numbers. Josephus writes about this in his book, The Antiquities of the Jews. He writes this about that foreign ruler who does go into the temple. He says, And when the king, that particular king, had built an altar upon God's altar, he slew swine upon it. So which is to say, he slaughtered a pig. Now, if you're kind of familiar with Judaism in the Old Testament, like to go into God's temple... Build your own altar and slaughter a pig on it. Like this is crashing a plane into the Pentagon type thing. Josephus continues, And so offered a sacrifice neither according to the law nor the Jewish religious worship in that country. So besides this desecration, that foreign king pillaged the people and the city, killing many, and this led to what we call the Maccabean Revolt, um, where people successfully threw out that ruler. And the temple was then, when the ruler was thrown out, is rededicated. And there's this special oil and these lights, which leads to the story of Hanukkah. If you're familiar with that, this story here is central in the Hanukkah story. That's number two. A little more than a hundred years later, a Jewish leader named Herod expanded the temple grounds in significant ways, such that around the time of Jesus, and I I think we have a picture of it, I want to put on the screen here. Uh, We'll take a moment, you can just read it. (laughs) I know you you can't read that. Um, It's from the ESV Study Bible, so you could read it there if you want, from Mark 13, it it just pulled this out. That's actually, I emailed the wrong one. That's funny. Uh, There's two. That's the zoomed in version. I'll fix that for second service. 
Sorry, that's not going to help you. Um, that is the temple grounds. There's another picture that expands out. This is helpful to us because it's more zoomed in. Behind this, there's a fortress called the Antonia Fortress. That's where the soldiers in the passage rush out to break up the fight. Not in the picture, um, I don't think. It's just outside of that. But what is in this picture actually better is that wall um, along the outside is this wall that kept the Gentiles out. That's as close as they could go to the temple. And so on that wall, again, not pictured and you can't read it, there's a sign that says this. You, you, you can put it away, Kevin. But a sign on that wall that kept the Gentiles out said this. Foreigners must not enter inside the wall or into the forecourt around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for the ensuing death. Not exactly Mikasa Sukasa, right? That's one. Five, four, three, two, one. So in Acts 21, Paul goes to Jerusalem and he's accused of taking a Greek, a Gentile, into the temple grounds. That's the boom. And so, with all that in mind, you can see why, in one sense, we can say, yes, that escalated quickly. But in another sense, years and years and years of history went into that moment here in Acts 21 to make it so explosive. Maybe they were right to be leery of the Apostle Paul. Sounds like he did something wrong, right? Maybe he did. We'll see. In the interest of time, I'll tell you, I really only want to make one point in this sermon from this passage, and that's this. Christians are willing to become all things to all men for all of God's glory. That's what I think this passage is illustrating for us. Christians are willing to become all things to all men for all God's glory. Now that line there is an adaption of something the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And you don't have to flip there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I just want to read you a few lines that the Apostle Paul wrote when he's describing, okay, what am I trying to do in my ministry? What, 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 what am I about as a minister of the gospel? Like, who am I? What am I doing? What drives me on? He wrote this to the church in Corinth. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. And then he puts in parentheses, though, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law, meaning the Jewish people who are under God's law. He wants to win them into Christ. Verse 21, to those outside the law, meaning Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So I can't do anything I want, but I, but I have to like follow Christ. But he says, I do all that, that I might win those outside the law, that I might win Gentiles. In summary, verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all, he writes, for the sake of the gospel. That I might share with them, Jew or Greek, that I might share with them in its blessings. 
This desire to do whatever he could, whatever was necessary, so that others would encounter the living God in the person of Jesus Christ was Paul's heartbeat. This is what drove him to do the things he did. And we see it in action here in this passage, just as we see others who do not share his passion. I want you to see both. Like Paul's pressing on, follow Christ, no matter what. Others say, whoa, 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 whoa. Paul's ready to die for Jesus, but not everyone thinks he should. I want you to consider, for example, the lines in this passage about the Holy Spirit. Now, just disclosure, this is going to take us into the weeds a little bit. <laughs> so we're going to go in the weeds. I think this is helpful. I think this will be helpful. So if you have a Bible, Acts 20, if it's still open uh, or not, just go ahead and open it. But verse 4, I want to read verse 4, and then I'll read verse 11 and 12. There are both places in two different cities, he's moving towards Jerusalem, that talk about the Holy Spirit saying, don't go to Jerusalem. Verse 4 and then 11 and 12. Verse 4 says this. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Come down with me to verse 11. And coming to us, he, this prophet named Agabus, excuse me, And coming to us, this prophet named Agabus took Paul's belt. (laughs) This is a dramatic scene, right? He takes Paul's belt and bound his own feet. Not Paul's, but Agabus' own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is saying this. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. Verse 12. When they heard this, we, so Luke's there with them, we and the people urged him, Paul, not to go up to Jerusalem. So what's going on here? In both passages, we're told that the Holy Spirit is warning Paul of the dangers of going on to Jerusalem. So in verse 4, we're told, if you look at it, through the Holy Spirit, they say, they were telling him not to go to Jerusalem. That's strange. It might not feel strange to you, but let me tell you what, that's, that's very strange because Luke has already told us twice Acts chapter 19, verse 21. Acts chapter 20, verses 22 and 24. Luke has already told us that Paul, that the Holy Spirit has told Paul, go to Jerusalem. So that's why verse 4 is strange. Because here it's saying, Holy Spirit, they're saying through the Holy Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. So is the Holy Spirit lying? Is God saying both go and don't go? That's what it looks like. But that can't be because God can't contradict himself. Is it truthful? So Hebrews chapter 6, it says it's impossible for God to lie. Like, he is a truthful God. So, so what, what, what's going on here? Is he saying, he's not saying go and don't go. What, like, what, what's going on? This is why we need to be in the weeds. Because I think it relates to the bigger picture I'm trying to paint here. Luke's trying to paint. I think the second set of verses about the Holy Spirit help us understand what goes on in verse 4. That's just good Bible reading. It's like, okay, I don't understand this part, but are there other parts in the passage or the Bible that help me understand this less clear part of the Bible? So if you look at verses 11 and 12 closely, the prophet Agabus does this dramatic thing in Paul's belt, and he's tying himself up, and the prophet even says, um, thus says the Holy Spirit. But then, if you look carefully, the people urge him not to go. Though they eventually, in verse 14, say, let the will of the Lord be done. 
In other words, they say, so in other words, it's yes, the Holy Spirit is saying, it's going to be really hard for you when you go, Paul. But no, the interpretation of that event is not that Paul shouldn't go. So that's clear in 11 and 12. It's not as clear in 4, but I think that's what's going on in 4. It's just said more briefly, more truncated. The Spirit did say it would be hard, but he's saying, Paul, you should go anyway. In other words, both of these groups of Christians were likely, they're they're messing up the interpretation of what God was telling them. The promise of difficulty did not mean that Christians should stay away. And and they likely had all sorts of spiritual reasons to offer. Paul, you're too important. You don't need to go. You can't go there. Something bad's going to happen to you and you're too important. Paul, if you just stay away, you can write more letters. You seem to like to write letters. And Paul says, no. I'll become all things to all men for all of God's glory, even if it costs me my life. So he goes. And the Christians who are there with him, they they come around. Okay, verse 14, the will of the Lord be done. So the will of the Lord is this. They determine, like, we've talked about it, we've prayed about it. Okay, that is the right interpretation. Let's go. And even in Jerusalem, those Christian leaders come around too. He goes there, he meets with James and the other leaders, and, and they devise this plan. It's sort of obscure to us. They just devise this plan where he's going to, there's these other Jews who are taking this vow, and so to show that Paul is, is Jewish and, and he's not just this renegade, um, he's going to do this vow with them and even pay for their vow, so he's going to bankroll this little vow and time of prayer, this time of purification that these other leaders were going under. He's going to do that with them in solidarity. But this is a tightrope. And I just want you for a minute to feel the, the, how precarious this is for Paul. On the one hand, if he doesn't do something to move towards these Jews in Jerusalem, they're not going to take Jesus seriously because they're going to write Paul off as someone who doesn't care about the Old Testament. Right? There's Paul, he left, he did the Gentile thing. That's because he doesn't give a rip about the Old Testament. But Paul says, the Old Testament is really important because that's what shows us who Jesus was going to be and is. He's the Messiah. He's the Jewish Messiah. So the Old Testament really matters. So that's one hand. And then on the other hand, Paul could fall out of the favor with the Gentiles. He's bringing all these Gentiles with him. He's going to go there and, and he's going to bring them and show this unity. But like if he's over here being too Jewish, then all these Gentiles are going to like, what's, what's up with us? And not only that, the gospel's at stake. If Paul's over here doing all these Jewish things, he goes and undergoes this Old Testament, it's in Numbers chapter 6, this vow of purification, he undergoes that, he's going to look so Jewish potentially, and so following the Old Testament laws, that people are going to stand back and go, okay, well maybe we're saved by doing Old Testament laws. Maybe if I just do enough good works, then God saves people. Like, Do, do you feel the tensions? This is a tightrope. And I think about all the Christian leaders have been navigating over this last year. Race and elections and COVID and masks. It's just this tightrope. And sometimes our church has done it better than others. Our church has done it better than others. I know that. We're learning. You guys have been gracious with us. But, but, but behind whatever the end result has been, I would just tell you, our heart, however imperfectly it's been communicated, has been the same, to walk this same tightrope, to stay focused on the gospel without falling into this ditch or that ditch or that ditch over here. It's been hard. So Paul's going to try his best. 
along with these leaders in Jerusalem, and together they're going to try and do all things for all, all, all people for all of God's glory. But it turns out the religious fanatics in Jerusalem don't care all that much about truth. So, so I asked the question, like, why, why did that escalate quickly? One answer is history. There's another answer. They don't care about truth. Sounds like he did something wrong, right? He, he brought this Jew or this Gentile into the temple and five, four, three, two, one, boom. Like, this is a big deal. Maybe Paul did something wrong, or did he? Look, look with me again at verses 28 and 29. I'm going to pick up in the middle of 28. It's their speech. Paul, they say, even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Like all the bad things Paul did, he comes here and takes these Greeks and brings them past that wall with the sign that I read a moment ago. Continuing verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Trophimus is mentioned in Acts 20, verse 4. He's one of the people Paul does bring with him, but he didn't bring Paul into the temple, didn't bring that guy into the temple. Like, I mean, do you think all that work, all that effort to do the right thing, walk the tightrope, he's just going to bring somebody into the temple? Notice that word suppose. What does that mean? They supposed. This religious mob, I will tell you, because this is throughout the book of Acts, didn't care to fact check. Their accusation was built upon falsehood. They didn't care, and they didn't care. Contrast this with the way the Luke portrays the Roman military commander, verse 33 and 34. Look what, look what Paul or Luke writes about. This military command you, what is called the, the, the tribune. Then the tribune came, or tribune, came up and addressed him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Ordered Paul. So, like, they rush out of the garrison. They're going to grab Paul. Okay, the, the Paul, bind Paul up. And then he, this military commander, inquired who he, Paul, was and what Paul had done. He inquired, like, what's going on? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to fact check. I'm going to figure this out. So, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And mark this, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him, Paul, brought to the barracks. When the military leader can't figure out the facts, he slows down. It's a roundabout way for Luke to remind readers, as he has done multiple times throughout his book, and to remind us that Christians care about truth. I think of something I read recently from a Christian author and named Russell Moore. Uh, he, he was writing, uh, he was commenting on a fringe cult-like conspiracy theory that has sucked many Christians in. And Russell Moore is writing about that, but more he's writing to Christians who know people, other Christians who are kind of in this kind of stream. And he's writing to Christians, counseling them about how to think and help and, and just navigate that world. And Russell Moore writes this sober warning. He says, one cannot reason with someone, excuse me, one cannot reason someone out of something they were never reasoned into in the first place. 
One cannot reason someone out of something that they were never reasoned into in the first place. This statement would describe these Jews. They yell about Paul, string him up. Not because they care about truth and what really happened, but because Paul and Christianity threatened their power. This mob loved power, and the lordship of Jesus Christ threatened their power, as it always does. We'll see this more clearly next week as Pastor Ben leads us through part two of this story, where Paul gets up to this crowd and speaks to them. Now, some modern commentators, I'll tell you a few, think that Paul's mission failed when he went to Jerusalem. I mean, it was, so, it was going so good before this, right? And this event is the thing that gets him arrested. It drives the rest of the book. He's going to end up in Rome because this event right here goes from this jail to that jail to this jail, and then this ship to that ship, and this island to that island, and all of a sudden he's in Rome in jail again. So Paul clearly failed. Maybe he should have listened to the others to stay away. Maybe his desire to become all things to all people got away from him. What do you think? I don't think he failed. Last page. I don't think he failed. I think that at the final judgment, when God opens the books, the Bible speaks of opening the books of the deeds of everyone who's ever lived, And he puts them on display. God's going to hold up this event. Among the many deeds that God will hold up on that day. To show that Paul was in fact changed by the gospel. This is a changed man. For God's glory. Jesus will point right here and say. Although Paul, he knew he'd be misunderstood. Although Paul knew he'd be persecuted and beaten and eventually killed, the Holy Spirit told him as much. My servant Paul went anyway, trying to become all things to all men for all of God's glory so that more people would know me. My death, my resurrection, my love, my forgiveness. Look how I changed Paul. Perhaps there are some people in your life right now and, and, and you just look at what this is going to cost to reach them, to share about Jesus, what it might cost you socially to be identified with Christ at your workplace or in your family. And you wonder if it's worth it. Is it worth it to love them? Keep loving them? Is it worth it to commit to the local church when like phew, churches are so ugly and confusing and hard and squirrely and people are awkward and is it worth it maybe some of you have been loving a spouse for decade who doesn't know the lord and you're already doing this you're already pouring yourself out and you wonder does god even see does he know does he care i think if we could have sat with paul in prison he'd tell us jesus is worth it And he sees, and he knows, and he cares. And speaking of Jesus here, there's this pivotal verse, I'm almost done. There's this pivotal verse in Luke's gospel. 
We read in, in chapter 9, 51, and, and we were preaching through Luke's gospel years ago. Uh, we made a big deal of this when we came to it. It's, it's you know, 951. It's not, it's not even a chapter break. Like, why, why 951? But that's where it falls. 951, Jesus says he set his face towards Jerusalem. And in the rest of Luke's gospel, Jesus is going, he's going, he's going, he's going to Jerusalem because he knows in Jerusalem that's where Good Friday is. He's the Passover lamb who's going to take away the sins of the world. Paul could set his face to Jerusalem. And we, just as we could set our face to serve God, because Jesus first set his face to Jerusalem for us. The Bible describes Jesus' work of redemption by saying that Jesus appeared for us as our high priest, going into the temple. This is the way the Bible describes Jesus' work of redemption. As, As our high priest going into the temple, not to sacrifice an animal, a lamb, a pig, but to sacrifice himself on the altar for God's people. If we praise Paul for being all things to all men, for all God's glory, if Christians live to be all things to all people, for all of God's glory, if you and I serve God, it's only because Jesus became all things for us. Praise God for that. Would you join me in prayer? I'm going to invite the worship team back up for a few songs. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know that on every random Sunday, the obstacles that we're bumping up against in all of our lives for all the people that will come here are so many and varied. Um, I couldn't name them. I couldn't, there's no way I could even know them. But you do. And Lord, I pray that this picture of the Apostle Paul just bent, setting his face to go to Jerusalem, to follow you. Lord, I pray that by the power of the gospel, that you would cause us not only to be those who are saved, those who are called out, those who love you and cherish you and have been loved by you, but then those who, that same power that saves us also would change us to be those who follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.